When I first came to Christ City, I remember struggling to preach Jesus because I felt like I had to convince both myself and often others that I was preaching to that they really did need Jesus. I remember one day in particular wrestling with this as I had the opportunity to share the gospel with some folks in the the new neighborhood that I had moved into, into South Granville. As I walked up to the dads collecting the kids and that playground, I remember thinking, how do I do this? Because from all external uh, measures, they look like they don't really need Jesus at all or anything that he could offer. And that was then. Today, I think everything has changed, hasn't it? Today, it's probably true that most of us are more aware of the brokenness of this world that we live in than we ever have been in our lives. We're more aware of possibly of sin and of our need for God to come and to rescue. Today, it's easy to see what's wrong with this world. But I think for most of us, what's not so obvious is knowing what to do as we see the things that are wrong. What do we do with our experience of the wrongness? What do we do with our pain and with our suffering? Well, this morning, we're going to begin to look at the book of Lamentations, jumping into the book proper proper in chapter 1. And we're doing that so that we would learn to enter into the grief of God's ancient people and to reach out with them to the God of all comfort. As you look today at chapter 1 of Lamentations, I want to show you three things that we must do in order to learn and to be prepared to receive the comfort that God gives to sufferers. Number one, as we look, we will see that we must organize our pain. Number two, we must ask God our questions. And number three, we must learn from our lament. So look with me at our first point, organize our pain. And first, I want to set the stage for you, because as we come to the, as we come to the book of Lamentations, we come in the middle of a context that is extremely difficult. The context is this, in 587 before Christ, 2,607 years ago, after a hard battle, after two years of siege, and two years of horrific famine in the city, Jerusalem, the capital city of God's ancient Jewish people, fell to Babylon. Zedekiah, who was the king of this people, the king of the southern kingdom that was taken away, of which Jerusalem was the capital, he had, after they fell to Babylon, he had his eyelids held open as he was forced to watch his sons slaughtered in front of him. And then to ensure that that gut-wrenching scene was the last thing he ever saw, his own eyes were gouged out. You see, Old and young, men, women, and children, the priests and the princesses, the poor and the rich, the city and the temple, the dwelling place of God, all were destroyed. And after all of this, those who survived were stripped naked, shamed, humiliated, and forced to walk in chains 1,450 kilometers 
leaving Jerusalem, their home, far behind, and going to Babylon. Now, you and I have experienced some suffering in our lives. Maybe you've experienced much more than I have. But I don't think any of us have experienced this. This isn't suffering that you get over because the sun begins to shine and you go out for an early morning run. You get an early morning coffee to yourself. Now, this is, this is horror. This is the image of God within you trampled down so mercilessly that you wonder if you're even human anymore. The survivors had witnessed in this city during the famine starving mothers consuming their dead or dying children in order to find a little bit more strength to stay alive for a few more days to take care of the kids who were left. How do you respond to suffering like this? Well, as the years moved on, after the events of the destruction of Jerusalem, the author of Lamentations, he responded by sitting down. He took pen and paper and began applying all of his creative energy and his power to express the depths of Judah's collective agony and grief to express them to God. He responded with structure, with creativity, and with order. And the book of Lamentations itself is an incredible example of Hebrew poetry. It doesn't sound like that to us, maybe. It doesn't sound like Shakespeare or Milton or maybe Jim Harrison, if you're into the modern poets. But it has stood the test of time for the last 23 centuries at least. And it stood as arguably the greatest representation of creative and beautiful Hebrew poetry that we have in the Bible. And his pain, this author, he wrote five poems that come to us in five chapters in the book of Lamentations. Four of these poems, they're acrostics. That's where each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so each chapter except chapter 3 has 22 verses. But this is where the structure gets very interesting because not only is each poem carefully crafted, the author has carefully structured also its location within the book. It's like a carefully arranged album of music where every track contributes to the sense of the whole album. That's the way that each poem works in the book of Lamentations. Let me show you. It begins with chapters 1 and 2, each having only the first line of each three-line verse begin with the subsequent letter of the alphabet. And there's the acrostic. But this pattern crescendos in emotion and pain and content to chapter 3, which is the center of the book. And there we see an acrostic pattern times 3. It's 66 verses, not 22. And each Hebrew letter receives three lines of poetry. This pattern serves to highlight chapter 3 as the author turns to trust the, God, the goodness of God's character despite the incredible suffering of God's people. But then, after chapter 3, chapters 4 and 5, they have this accelerated pace as they become less ordered and shorter, abandoning the acrostic pattern altogether in chapter 5. And in this way, the book ends with its own structure broken. In structure and in content, the book ends with this 
broken confusion and pain in a posture of hands upheld to God in prayer, waiting, waiting, waiting. Well, that's a lot of information about Hebrew poetry, probably more than you expected this morning. So if you haven't fallen asleep, maybe you're wondering, why does this matter? Let me answer that with a quote. Barry Webb in his book, Five Festal Garments, he writes this about the arrangement of the Book of Lamentations. He says, The mind of a person in deep sorrow characteristically moves in circles, returning again and again to the source of the grief unable to leave it and unable to resolve it. What the acrostic form does is to allow the grief to be fully expressed and yet at the same time sets limits to it. Friends, maybe, maybe you know what this is like. Maybe you have felt the confusion and the disorientation and the restlessness of grief. Maybe you've seen it in somebody else and they've cast about in their mind and in their actions looking for rest, struggling struggling to express their grief. You see, mourning and sorrow, they're not things that you personally experience at arm's length, are they? Not at all. No, they're like floodwaters that carry you along, catching you up in their current and tossing you end over end and over end in disorientation and confusion. And friends, for the author of Lamentations, lament was a rock to hold on to in the floodwaters of grief. It was a stable place to begin to process his pain. So in response to this, I think that we look at the book of Lamentations and we need to learn, likewise, to organize our grief. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable, but friends, we need this if we're going to begin to experience the healing comfort of God in the depths of our suffering and our sorrow. You don't need to be a poet. You just need to take a piece of paper and a pen and sit down one day and actually begin to write down what's happened to you. Write down with blunt frankness the dates, the times, the situations, how those things made you feel, what happened, how they make you feel today, how you're wrestling with them. Write them down and pour out your heart to God. Begin to organize your lament as you begin to cry out to God and allow him to comfort you in your pain. So first we need to Learn from lamentations as a whole that we must organize or lament. And second, the second way we respond to our suffering, which we're going to learn from chapter one, is by asking God our questions. And if there's any one question that can be said to characterize lament, it's the question, how? Mark Vrogop, he picks up this idea and he writes, how could this happen? How can God allow this? How can God's people survive How do we think about the future? These are the questions and complaints of lament. Just look with me for a moment at Lamentations 1 verse 1. Look at the way the author cries out his questions and his wonderment 
as he exclaims outward as he considers the destruction of God's people. How could the prosperous and beautiful daughter of Zion become a weeping and a bereaved widow? Look at verses 1 and 2. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Or verse 3. How could she who is strong with the presence and the glory of God be overcome by her enemies? She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Or verse 10. How could the dwelling place of God on earth, the Jerusalem temple, how could it be trampled down by foreigners, by the enemies of God who hated him? The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. How could God's own people suffer so? Look at verse 11. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Friends, there is relief in beginning to ask God your questions. I think we often avoid this, though. Very often, I think we treat God the same way that maybe we treated our parents when we were young and angry and confused or we didn't agree with the things that they said or told us to do or we didn't understand. For example, I remember being 17 and I remember being forbidden from going to a party that I really wanted to go to. I was told no, and I remember storming off in anger. I remember actually being outside and coming up to this place where I had this wooden shingling on the wall and punching that wall so hard that my knuckles bled. The reality was I was a young man with this big crush on a girl at the party. And my dad, he could have helped me navigate that situation. He could have helped me. He loved me. He could have helped me think about what it meant to be a young man thinking about a relationship. But in my anger, what did I do? In my anger, I closed my heart to my dad. I turned away from him. I built a wall and said, no, you don't have any part of this part of my life. And here's my question for us. How will we ever heal from the deep, deep wounds that we've experienced in this life, from our suffering, if we never open up our pain to the only God who can do something about it? How will we ever heal if we don't ask him? our questions, to begin to let him in. You see, asking these hard questions, it's often the very first step to opening yourself up to receive the healing comfort of the God of all comfort. So first, we look at lamentations. We see we must organize our lament. Second, we look at chapter two. We see we must ask the hard questions. And third, sorry, chapter one, asking the hard questions. And third, looking at chapter one again, we see that we must learn from our lament. 
In order to receive the comfort God offers us, we must learn from our lament. You see, one thing we miss as we read Lamentations is I think we miss the way that the author didn't sit down the next day after Jerusalem was destroyed and begin to write about the events that have happened. No, his lament is the distillation of years of reflection, thinking about what has happened to his people and to the city. And as he slows down, and as he processes his pain and lament, he realizes several surprising and really difficult and challenging things. We see this in chapter 1. The first thing he realizes is that Jerusalem's suffering didn't come out of nowhere. And no, Jerusalem's suffering came from the hand of God. Just look at 1 verse 5 and 1 verse 12. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Note this. Because the Lord has afflicted her. Or look at 1 verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his furious anger. And the second thing that he notices as he's wrestling with these realities is that God was in the right. He was right to do it. Look at 1 verse 5 and 1 18. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And 1 verse 18, the Lord is in the right for I have rebelled against his word. Just stop and consider these two points with me for a second. This is, this is hard. This is going to be a difficult thing to think through. But, but bear with me. See, as the author reflects on God and on the Bible and on his suffering, he realizes something that is extremely troubling. He realizes the horrors that God's people experienced were the horrors of a holy God punishing human sin. And as troubling as it must have been to admit, the author looks at his people's history. He thinks about himself. He thinks corporately about the people that he's part of. He looks at the way that they've been living their lives and at their sin, and, and he confesses on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people that he was part of. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. even in the darkness of his despair, the author doesn't criticize God's character. He confesses God's righteousness. God has done what is right. But isn't this exactly the difficulty that we struggle with today in our suffering? I think when it comes to our suffering and our pain, we often struggle to recognize a loving and merciful God, a sinful world, intense suffering, and punishment for sin from this holy and good God. How do those things all go together? We struggle to, to make them fit. And as we struggle, I think we struggle especially when we're not just intellectualizing an answer. We're not just wrestling and thinking up here. It gets harder when we're experiencing the depths of the darkness of suffering ourselves. How do we make sense of what is going on? Besides, as clear as it is for the author of Lamentations that God's people, that it was their sin that led to God's judgment, it's not so clear for us today, is it? 
There are many situations that we are in where we don't really understand who is responsible for the suffering. Who is responsible for the suffering of the husband who's caring for his wife of the past 30 years who now has Alzheimer's? Who is responsible for the suffering of the woman whose child has died due to cancer? In this world, there is so much that we don't know. There is so much in our suffering that we don't see, that we don't understand. And friends, I want to say this as gently and as carefully as I can. Even in the midst of the confusion and when things are not clear, even here, the Bible confronts us with our own sin. The Bible does it with grace and with kindness guided by the Holy Spirit so that we would see our sin even in the midst of our suffering so that we would grow to turn to the God of grace, the God who loves us, the God who longs to pour out his comfort and his mercy and his grace on us in our present experience. Because even when we don't see the connections, the Bible is clear that the origins of human suffering in the world are because of human sin. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, our problem is that our sin Our sin blinds us from seeing our sin. Our sin blinds us from seeing our sin. And this only gets more true as we suffer the pain that we experience in this world. We struggle to see our sinfulness both individually and collectively. As our sin holds us captive to humanity's global confirmation bias, as we all go headlong down a path of rebellion against God, encouraging one another to do the same, living together in our confirmation bias. You see, we fail to see our sin in doing things that are wrong. That's true. But more often, I think, we fail to see our sins of indifference. We fail to see the way that we sin in not doing what God in his grace has called us to do. To love him. To know his acceptance and his grace and his mercy. To live richly in relationship with him and worship. To love others as ourselves, as the love of God is poured into our hearts and would flow through us to those around us, both in word and in deed. We struggle to see our sin. And friends, I think that the question that we face looking at what the author's experience of his suffering is, is this. Will we let lament teach us? You see, real honest lament is difficult. But as we do it, God teaches us. As we do it, we're sobered by the reality that we aren't all that we thought we were. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled. Against his word. And this leads us to the last thing that the author learns from lament. It's the last thing that he realizes that only God 
offers true comfort to suffering sinners. Look at 1 verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Or 1 verse 16. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. Or 1 verse 19. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. You see, God's people, they looked to false comfort as they rebelled against God's instructions for their flourishing in this world. And for a while in their rebellion and in their false comfort, it sort of worked. But all of their comfort was deceptive. All of their comfort was false. This is what God knew all along. So all along, he knew that nothing could satisfy his people but himself. And he stood with arms outstretched, waiting calling them, sending messengers to them to come to him, to turn from sin and to receive the love and the affection and the comfort that only he could give. But his people refused. In 2 Chronicles 36, 16-17, the chronicler reflects on the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, he sent persistently to them by his messengers. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He wanted them to come to him. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. And it's not until Jerusalem is sitting in her misery on the other side of the punishment for her sins, processing her sin, processing her suffering through lament, that she finally realizes the truth. All her comforters were false. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Friends, as you learn from lament, I want to encourage you, have the courage to ask this question. Have my lovers deceived me? Maybe this past year, you too have been running away from God, looking for comfort in the arms of deceptive lovers. Maybe you've run to to physical pleasures. Maybe you've been Drinking a little bit too much? It's pretty easy to do right now, I think. Maybe you've been running to promises of success, material gain, losing yourself in your work because it's just a means of of filling that void in your soul. Maybe you've been looking to binge entertainment. Kind of tired of it maybe at this point, but you're, you're still doing it because it's something to do when you're tired and feeling crappy. Or less dismally, perhaps, we've been running to a lot of the good things that God's given us in our lives, to to families or vacations or to exercise. Maybe the sunny weather to find comfort for your soul. But all the while, you're ignoring God. All the while, he's standing with arms open in compassion and mercy, saying, come to me. Find true and lasting comfort here. Friends, learn from your lament. Churn from false comforters. Churn from sin and run into the arms of the God of all comfort. And as we conclude, I want you to think about your suffering. I want you to think about your pain. In suffering, it's often the case that we weep. But friends, the question for us is, do we weep as those who are grieving over our sin and longing for Jesus? Or do we weep simply because suffering is so difficult? 
Do we weep just long enough to complete our apology circuit and to uh, jump back up in our rankings? You see, God is the God of all comfort. But hear this, he's only comfort for us if we come to him ready to receive his gospel grace. And friends, we won't be ready to receive his gospel grace for us in our suffering until we order our grief, until we honestly ask him our questions, until we let lament teach us. Teach us to see our sin. Teach us to turn to him in repentance and in trust. Friends, God is ready to receive you with more compassion and love wherever you're at and whatever suffering you're in than you ever dared imagine. Friends, we lament in the shadow of the cross and because of that, we have great hope. We lament knowing that God himself willingly died for us in the person of Jesus. We lament knowing that our sin has been paid for in full. We're not expecting and waiting for the judgment of God to be poured out on us. It's already been poured out on Jesus. We've been washed with his precious blood and we're reconciled to God and he promises that he will never leave us and never forsake us because of Christ. We lament in the shadow of the cross as those who have God's presence with us forever by his Holy Spirit. We lament to a God who doesn't just have a a disposition of grace toward us, but stays far away. No, we lament to a God who is powerfully working to create life through the resurrection of his son. He's doing that now in his church, and he promises to complete that work one day when he raises us from the dead and ends death and suffering and sin forever. Friends, we lament in the shadow of the cross as those who look forward to the day when Jesus will do what he has promised to do. When sin is gone forever. When there's no more suffering. When there's no more tears. And when we dwell forever in the presence of the God of all comfort. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy towards sinners like us. Thank you even for the difficult and the hard grace of suffering that's meant to teach us, that's meant to lead us to you, It's meant to lead us to turn from sin and from false comfort, and to turn towards you, the God of all comfort. Would you exalt Jesus in our midst? Would you cause us to long for him, even in the midst of our suffering? That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.